Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu slash business. The opinions expressed on this program represent the viewpoints of individual authors or contributors and do not necessarily reflect those of Troy University. This is eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy. Now, here's your host, Dr. Dan Sutter. Hello and welcome to eConversations. I'm your host, Dr. Dan Sutter of the Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Many people think that economics is all about money and that markets unleash the greediest among us to enrich themselves. When people start learning about economics, they often will see econom as economists are seemingly always wanting to rain on their parade, emphasizing how we can never, as individuals or a nation, get everything we want due to scarcity. Yet when we drill down, we see that markets are built on the principle of volunteerism and constitute a very moral system of human interaction. Joining me on eConversations today is a philosopher, Dr. James Otteson of Notre Dame. Dr. Otteson's research lies at the junction of philosophy and economics, emphasizing the fundamental morality, equality, and dignity of, an e of a market economy. He earned a bachelor's degree from Notre Dame and a PhD in philosophy from the University of Chicago. At Notre Dame, Dr. Otteson holds the John T. Ryan Jr. Professor of Business Ethics, I'm sorry, um, where he also directs the Notre Dame Deloitte Center for Ethical Leadership. Prior to returning to his alma mater, he taught at the University of Alabama, Yeshiva University, and Wake Forest University. He has written or edited 12 books and more than 30 scholarly papers or book chapters. Today, we'll be talking about his most recently published book titled Seven Deadly Economic Sins, which discusses some of the great economics fallacies, but from a decidedly philosophical perspective. Welcome to eConversations, Jim. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's uh, talk a little bit in terms of overview of your book. Um, one level, as an economist, I'd read this and see, like, okay, the, these seven deadly sins, and we'll, we'll get into what they are, are in a, a moment, are some of the, the great fallacies of, of economics and some of the, the difficulties or some of the issues that people often have when they think about economics. But it, as you emphasize, I think there's also a very philosophical uh, part of this that also extends on it into our own personal lives. So there, there's not just the possibility that we could end up having some bad economic policy if, if, if people buy into some, some of these fallacies, but it, it could uh, impact people in their own lives as well. So t tell us a little bit about this approach. Uh, yeah, no, you're exactly right. So thank you for asking me about that. But yeah, so the the seven deadly economic sins. I mean, obviously, I'm uh, you know I'm I'm wanting to evoke in people's minds the seven deadly sins. Um, you know, pride, greed, lust, envy, gluttony, wrath, sloth. Those are the, that's the traditional list anyway. Um, but you know, w why are those the the so so called deadly sins as opposed to any other sins? I mean, they're all, they're vices, but there are lots of different vices. But I think the reason um, that those are keyed in or traditionally have historically been sort of keyed in on as the the deadly sins is because um, they are not only they're not just vices that we have, but it, they seem to be things that we are peculiarly inclined um, to in, uh, indulge in. 
Um, so, you know, gluttony, wrath, sloth, these just seem to be things that are really um, close to the uh, the human condition the, and the, the human uh, situation. So they're very easy for us to indulge. They're very hard for us to master. Just when we think we've mastered one, we've realized that we're indulging or engaging in others. Um, and I think something is similar to what I what I call at least the um, the seven deadly economic sins. So these two are sins, so-called sins, but these are mistakes in reasoning that we make that seem intuitively compelling. So we we indulge them very easily. And in fact, they're almost, you know, when when you learn a little bit about economics, they almost seem counterintuitive, like the sins have to be true. Um, but, you know, all the things, if you think about all the things that economists disagree on, and they do disagree on a lot of things, um, there are a few things that uh, economic reasoning, and I think it's fair to say that a wide uh, swath of economists have agreed on, that are not just um, mistakes in reasoning when we're thinking about policies, as you say, but also when we're thinking about um, really how to organize our own resources in our lives, our time, our talent, our treasure in our own personal lives. If we want to lead a life that's flourishing personally, not just you know for evaluating policies, say, as citizens or as voters, uh, but if um, evaluating our lives personally for um, to enable us to lead flourishing human lives, I think we have to think about these same kinds of mistakes and reasoning. So then you, know, you mentioned the traditional seven deadly sins. Uh, briefly tell us uh, what are the, the seven deadly economic sins? Um, well, there, so I, um, I actually talk in the book, so I have seven main sins, uh, sins that I call them. Um, and then I have a few other ancillary sins that are sort of connected with them. So I sneak in a few extras uh, here and there. But, uh, but I'll mention a few. Maybe the first one that I mentioned, it's the first chapter of the book, um, is the idea that wealth is zero sum. So if you're not an economist, um, you, know, uh, you know, some of my best friends are uh, economists, um, but as you, as you know, um, not, not many people in the, who are not already economists read what economists write. Um, and so terms like zero sum and positive sum are not familiar terms to a lot of it, otherwise very well-educated people. Um, but the first sin that I talk about, um, I call it wealth is zero sum. And this is the idea that the only way one person or one group or one country, if you like, can get wealthy is at the expense of another person or group um, or country. Um, and, you know, and people, I think, can be forgiven for thinking that, because if you think about, you know, historically, think about the, the great civilizations of the past, um, you know, the, the Roman Empire, um, or the, you know, going even further back, think about the, uh, the Egyptian pharaohs and the pyramids, um, or, you know, coming closer to us in history around, you know, the first millennium, if you think about the, the Song Dynasty in China. These great civilizations uh, that human beings have created, almost all of them, if you ask, well, how did they get their wealth? Well, for the most part, the way they got their wealth was, in fact, through zero sum or maybe even negative sum transactions. But in other words, they got it by colonizing, stealing, enslaving, um, despoiling other people's property, taking other people's labor property and allocate or and then depositing in one place. Um, so that doesn't lead to an overall increase in wealth that just moves it from one place to another. Um, and I think what people think today, so my, that first fallacy, I realize you want me to talk about all of them, but I'll just mention that first one is that, and because I, I think it is in some ways the central one, that people think that if I'm wealthier than you, or if I've become wealthy, the only way that could possibly have happened is if I did that at someone else's expense, by stealing it from somebody, defrauding somebody out of something. Somehow or other, I did something wrong. Even if we don't know exactly what you did wrong, we think the only way you can get wealthy is at somebody else's expense because it's as if all the wealth in the world is fixed. And I think that's in some, that's the first chapter of my book, the first fa um, what I call the seven deadly economic sins. That's the first economic deadly sin. And in some ways, I think that's the most important.
And, and you can also see how that can spill over in terms of affecting one's own personal lives because if you see somebody who's successful in life and you don't realize that uh, economics is positive sum, you might think it's like, well, did that person take advantage of me or, or you know, the people around right. them? And, and, and you see, you're, you're, I guess you're just so naturally inclined to, to be jealous or, or, or more than jealous, just angry at somebody's uh, success Unless you, right. unless you fully understand this thing about uh, uh, economic activity being positive sum. Right. And, and, I, and again, to be fair, I would say that there are many cases in which that's actually true. So many of the people who are wealthier than us, they did get it through corruption or cronyism or some version of stealing or leveraging asymmetry and knowledge or something. Um, so all of those things absolutely do go on. And I don't want to suggest that they don't go on. Um, but my argument and the claim I make in the book is only that that's not the only way wealth can be created. And in fact, um, there, there are in a market economy, if in a well-functioning market economy, the main way wealth is created is through mutually voluntary and mutually beneficial. And so therefore positive sum transactions where both sides or all sides of the transaction are made better off, not one side at the expense of another. Another of the, the seven deadly sins that, that was very common is a certain, you label the uh, there is no great mind. And, uh -huh. yes. and, and so explain for us a little bit about what you mean by this, because, I mean, it, again, it's another of these ones that we so commonly fall into. Yeah. Um, so um, th that one, actually, that fallacy, I think, arises from a very common situation that I think people have sort of just naturally, we, we overestimate our knowledge. We think we know a lot more than we in fact do. Um, and we also combine that with the idea that we think there are people out there who have expert knowledge of basically everything. Um, and so you put those two things together and that gives rise in many people's minds to what I call the great mind fallacy. Um, and so it, it, it arises in the following way. We think that, well, surely there's some expert, um, somebody who studied the situation, whether it's, you know, think about medicine or healthcare or nutrition um, or economic policy or any, um, you know, you, you pick the large scale issue. Surely there's some expert who knows how we should all organize ourselves so that each of us as individuals with all of our different skills and abilities um, and our different sets of knowledge, how we should organize ourselves so that we can all achieve the good that we would like to do. Um, what I suggest is when I say there's no great mind is that there really isn't any person who knows all of these things. And, and you, can, you can illustrate this very simply if you'll allow me. It's a very simple way to think about it, at least to get to generate it. You know, if, suppose I say, well, you know, you're smarter than me. Maybe you're a lot smarter than me. Maybe you're the smartest person in the country. Um, so I want you to pick for me what I'm going to drink for bre breakfast tomorrow morning. And maybe there's only two choices, coffee and tea. Um, well, you don't know me, so what are the chances that um, you're going to make the right choice for me? Well, since you don't know me, you're basically good. It does, it's not a function of your intelligence. So you don't have the knowledge of what my preferences are or um, what the opportunities available to me are. So if you pick the choices, the chances you'll get it right are just 50-50 because they're just two choices. Um, but if we add another person, two people. Now, if you're choosing for two people, well, now it's 0.5 times 0.5, it's 0.25. We had a third person, we multiply it again, it's 12 and a half. Now, now suppose we had three drinks and now we add not just drinks, but also food and not just breakfast, but breakfast, lunch and dinner. And not just for the state of Indiana where I am, but for all 330 million people in the United States. I mean, it becomes very clear, it should become very clear that the probability that any one person could make, could get that entire decision uh, set correct, rapidly plummets to zero. Um, and so what we tend to think is, well, surely there's somebody out there who will know 
But the answer often is there isn't. There just is not such a person. Maybe God knows, um, but God's not running for office. <laughs> so here on Earth, um, there isn't any human being who even by orders of magnitude has the kind of knowledge that's required to actually organize, say, an economy for a country. It, it, and that's a part of it is what you were mentioning there is in Hayek, uh, Friedrich Hayek, the economist, uh, uses the term local knowledge. But that's a big part of, about what is going on there. And it's not just an economic uh, argument. It's very much a human happiness or, or well-being argument. Oh, yeah. you know, to, to, to the, the person who's going to come in and try and say, like, well, you shouldn't have either coffee or tea. You need to have, like, orange juice because that will be healthier for you or something like that. They simply don't know your circumstances. They don't know enough about other people to be able to offer the, the kind of really helpful, the, the, the kind of accurate advice they would need to have, right? Right. And, and, I, think, and I think that's the kind of um, sort of uh, error of, um, of category that people often make. So if you think about medicine, for example, you know, is there such a thing as medical expertise? Of course there is. Um, I'm not a medical doctor. So are there medical doctors whose advice, if they gave it to me, I should listen to it? Yes, absolutely. So I'm not, not denying anything like that. But, um, but it would be, th this is the kind of mistake that's easy to make. If we think about, um, you know, say, a, um, the, uh, the federal government setting standards, nutrition standards, um, you know, for the entire country, which they do. So they say you should have this much uh, bread and this much salt and this much sugar and not more than this. They have all of these. Well, um, those things are only going to apply to the literally average person. Um, so they're based on aggregate not, uh, data. They're based on averages over large populations. So whether they apply to you or to me personally can only be known by someone who actually knows your particular circumstances or my particular circumstances. So that's why the first thing, if you go to a medical doctor, what's the first thing the medical doctor asks you is your history, but they would need to know about you. They don't need to know the averages, they need to know about you. And, they, and that's, how they, that's the only way they stand a chance of being able to know whether the general information they have, which is, genu which is genuine, it's expert, expert knowledge, but how or whether it applies to you, they can only know if you, they know your particular situation. So that, that's, that's a, so that distinguishes between, on the one hand, expert knowledge, and on the other hand, knowledge that's usable by any individual person. Another of the uh, scenes you raised uh, that we want to make sure we, we talk about is uh, regards equality. And, and you ask, uh, the, no. the t title of the chapter is Equality of What? But uh, the important point that you, you make there is that there are different things you, we could think of equalizing people in. E even if you accept that uh, as something that you want as a, a goal, if you're going to equalize things, they still have the question of what exactly are going to equalize. And some of the things you might want to equalize, they're different things, and they can work at cross-purposes. So you, you, there's going to be there's some very real limits to e, uh, equality a, a, as this goal. So if you could elaborate a little bit for that. Yeah, no, you're exactly right about that. So um, I, I take my cue from Amartya Sen, the Nobel Prize winning economist Amartya Sen, who, um, who first indicated, and I think he's right about this, he said, just about every moral theory that has anything going for it at all. If you think about all the, comp the competing moral theories, any of them that we might actually subscribe to are going to champion equality of some sense or other. There's going to be some kind of equality that seems to be a core feature of just about any, um, any credible moral theory. But the problem is that many of the versions of equality, the different conceptions of equality, um, first of all, are inconsistent with one another, and second of all, might even be, as you say, at cross purposes. So if you champion one, it will come at the expense of another. 
Um, so uh, just to give you an example, so suppose you say, well, we want equality before the law. If that's the version of equality, you want all laws to apply to all people in the same way and not to make any distinction among different age groups or um, or gender or any or any other kinds of demographic facts about people. If the, um, if that's the kind of uh, if that's the version of equality we want to champion. Well, then you're probably going to have a set of economic institutions that will allow people to have very different levels of wealth inequality. So you will have a great deal of wealth inequality in a society that has equality before the law. So, or by contrast, if you think about it the other way, well, what we want to do is equalize wealth. Um, okay, well, if you equalize wealth, um, then you're going to have to treat different people differently, which means you're no longer going to have equality before the law. Um, and so, and similarly with other kinds of equality, if you want equality of welfare or equality of benefit or equality of income, all of these different versions will require sets of institutions that will either preclude other versions of equality or enable various kinds of inequality to arise. And so the different, the kind of philosophical issue I think that raises. So that's the first interesting point is that if you, if you want to pick a version of equality, what you have to do is say, why is that version of equality more important than any other? Um, and that's much more difficult to do than you might suspect. Um, and I think one of the purposes of that chapter that I discuss is not just to make the point that you have to try to figure out which of these versions is the one you want, um, but also when you when you when you start zeroing in on or homing in on a version that you think is the right version that say policy should support, like equality before the law, let's say, or maybe equality of opportunity, um, you're going to have to be comfortable with the fact that there will be other kinds of inequality that are now allowed. There's no such thing as equality of everything that cannot possibly happen, not logically and um, not, you know, in the world, in the real world as it is. You can't have that. So you're going to have to make a choice. In another chapter, as we talk about the, the apparent contrast between economics and, and morality, you have a, a really great uh, you offer the really great question about the slogan to uh, people over profit. And that's often oh, yes. offered. Uh, often offered by people as like th this great fair uh, way to organize the economy. But you end up arguing, and, and I think very you know, well, arguing that it's actually quite selfish of somebody to make a claim about people over profit. So if you could take a, a couple minutes to, to, to explain this for us, because I think it's so fascinating, and, and I think uh, it'd be great for people to sort of understand how this comes about. Thank you. Yeah, that's kind of a counterintuitive claim and a controversial claim that I make too. But um, so often what people mean when they say people over profit. So, I mean, I, th I think they have in mind companies that will that are willing to sacrifice the interests of, say, employees, possibly of customers or clients, but usually it's of employees um, in order to make more money um, to, to gain profit. So the criticism when we say, hey, it should be people over profits um, is the implicit allegation that what you're really doing is favoring profits over people. And so you're willing to. Um, you know, you, to think about the, the, your employees as being expendable, um, so that you can, um, so that you can increase your profits. So what I suggest is, and what I explore is the possibility that, well, um, suppose you're one of these employees who's let go. So a company is thinking, you know, we, we need to reorganize, or you know, <laughs> we, we're not doing as well as we thought, or we want to go into a new market, or whatever it is. The company decides to lay you off or lay some other people off, and your response is people over profits. What you mean by that in that particular case is you need you should keep me in, in employ. You shouldn't uh, fire me, or maybe even you should not just keep me employed, but maybe also give me a raise. So 
But what I suggest is, and this is the argument I make, um, we have to keep in mind that if the company keeps you employ uh, in its employee if it didn't want to, or if it gives you a raise and it otherwise you know they didn't want to, that money has to come from somewhere. So that money is probably coming from somebody else. So who is the where is the money that they're paying you coming from? Well, it's going to come out of some other employee or some other group of employees, or maybe be translated into higher prices for uh, for customers or higher prices for clients. Um, but it's coming from somewhere. And so what that means is when you say people over profit in a case like this, what you're often saying is, I want you to pay attention to what I want, regardless of what's good for other people. In other words, even if it imposes costs on other people, I don't care about that because I want it. Um, and that's what I say is if that's the position, if that's really, you know, the, if that's at the bottom of the argument you're making, that seems uh, not to be a virtuous argument. That's not a moral argument. That sounds to me like a, like a pretty selfish argument. I think that's a, a, a when you see it that way, I, I think it's a, a very eye-opening way to, to, to get to that conclusion. It's not immediately obvious. Now, in, in another chapter, we talk about good is not good enough. You, know, you offer oh, an yeah. example uh, in, in there, and, and I think this gets to the kind of uh, uh, situation we often see in, in markets, and it's a tough, it's a tough one. You give the example of somebody's been running a coffee shop for many years, it's successful, their customers are quite happy, but now an even better coffee shop comes in around the corner, and nobody yeah. wants to come to this old uh, to the coffee shop they've been going to for for years and years. And this, uh, you know, th this coffee shop is now threatened with uh, likely going out of business, and and you know it, it could be through something that's no real fault uh, of the person running the, the the coffee shop. They haven't been cheating their customers. They haven't been giving them bad coffee. They're giving them the same coffee they have for for years, and, and people are happy. But now there's a new option, and, and they they are sort of going to lose out there. And I think you know the the, the reason I think is that a lot of people find this somewhat bizarre because. You can fail in markets, even though you've not, in some sense, we'd say anything you, you've done wrong. It's not like you know, it's yeah. not like you fail in school because you didn't study for the test. It's like, okay, if you take your opened your textbook and read the lesson, then you would have done better on the test. You, 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 you in effect could do nothing wrong and, and and still end up failing. And you know, and it's not just a business failing. It's probably that person's life dream, and and it could also uh, impact them financially in, in very significant ways. So. You know, talk a little bit about the, these kinds of situations that arise in markets, because I think they're some of the hardest ones for us to, to, to kind of grapple with or deal with. They they absolutely are. It's very difficult, and um, and you know, my discussion of it isn't meant to uh, to minimize or diminish you know the, the difficulties that something like that can face. Um, so you know, we all, we're all familiar. I assume most of us are familiar with the phrase from uh, Joseph Schumpeter of creative destruction, that this is, you know, just the natural process of what goes on in markets, new ideas, new innovation come about, and that renders other things uh, obsolete. And so there's this continuous practice of progress and creative destruction. But um, but I try to approach this a little bit differently. So, you know, going back to what you uh, said all the way at the beginning about the sort of a philosophical way of thinking about it, um, you know, compare this to, say, dating and falling in love with people. Um, you know, suppose um, I fall in love with someone or, you know, you, you, you meet somebody, you fall in love with that person um, and that re person really is the love of your life. And you're imagining spending the rest of your life with this person um, and maybe you're even beginning to make plans. But all of a sudden, this other person you're in love with decides, well, no, actually, I love somebody else. 
And maybe you dated for a while. Maybe you'd even talked about getting married or something. And maybe you even had conversations, you know, over the months or years even that you were dating about what your future life might be like as life partners. Uh, but then all of a sudden, the other person says, uh, sorry, I met somebody. I just met somebody else. I'm going to go elope, let's say, you know, take the worst case scenario. Just met somebody. Um, fell in love with somebody else. I'm going to go, um, going to go elope with that person and never, um, and we, uh, and our relationship is over. Think about the person. So you, the person who fell in love with the other person, you are devastated now. Um, you know, if that really is the love of your life, this is going to be very hard. You can't just, you know, get over it. Um, this is, this is something that's going to take some, it's going to be painful. It's going to take time. There's, it's not clear what other people can do for you. Um, so, but my suggestion is, and this is how I think it relates to the coffee shop scenario is, um, what, what are you, the person who's now disappointed, who fell in love and is disappointed? What, um, what right do you have, uh, to the other person who said no thanks to you and went on to somebody else? Can you sue that person for the affection you wanted to have or children you imagined having with that person or something? No, of course not. Um, you know, so even if, even, and the reason for that is very important what the reason for that is. It's because the other person is a free person and gets to decide with whom or to whom to share affection and from whom to withhold affection as a free person. And even if that means it disappoints people, even if it comes about as a matter of sheer luck or sheer accident, people still have the right to decide, no, I don't want to be with you. I want to be with somebody else. Um, and I think that's part of the price that we have to pay for living in a free society and respecting one another as agents of human dignity, that we have to respect your choices about things like that. And I think that's very similar then, or the argument I make is that that's similar to the case with the coffee shops. Um, you know, the coffee shop owner who now goes out of business because another coffee shop opened up across the street, is it disappointing, maybe even devastating? Yes, it very much is. Um, but does that mean that the the now out of business coffee shop owner has any right to claim against the patrons that are going somewhere else? I say the answer is no. Um, and for the same reason, they they the coffee shop owner has no more right to those other patrons than you have a right to that somebody you fall in love with uh, to you know guaranteeing or forcing them to be in love with you. Um, sometimes we suffer disappointments. Um, and yeah, that's part of the human condition. It's part of human life. Doesn't mean it's a good thing. Um, but I think that's part of, as I say, the, the that's part of the price we have to pay for respecting one another as full moral agents um, who possess human dignity. And, you know, I, I guess uh, that, you know, the, the, the whole idea that good isn't good enough, and, and there is an economic part of it as well, as I say, you no, know, there if, is, if yeah. there's only going to be like one coffee shop in this community, there's only enough business for one coffee shop, it really needs to be, you know, we want it to be the best one out there. And, and <laughs> if, if somebody's come along with an even better coffee shop than the one you've been running for years, and at some level, we need to have that one coffee shop be the best it can be, not just a good one. And, and, and that's a hard point. It's a hard point to sometimes see, especially when you realize, like, well, I mean, it's good and life is good, and you know, people have uh, their life plans here, and we, we don't, you know, necessarily want to disrupt them. Yeah, and and th and this goes back to the economist's uh, point that you said before about raining on people's parades. You know, we do live in a world of scarce resources, um, which means that we can't have all the good things we would like to have. Um, so we have to make choices, and sometimes putting resources in one direction means you cannot put those same resources in another direction. Um, and so what you have to do if you want to make good use of our limited resources, which includes things like our time or our skills and abilities, in addition to things like our money, is we really have to ask ourselves not whether, not just whether something we're thinking about doing is, would lead to a good result, 
but it, it would it lead to a better result than the other things that are available to us? So it has to. So just saying it's good is not yet good enough in that sense. It has to be better than the other alternatives. In, in the conclusion of your book, you wrap up by you know, reminding because this is a, a theme you'd had throughout this book and other books uh, of yours is that you know the markets give everybody the, oper the the right to say no, thank you to to other people when they uh, make you offers, and you know, like you advocate you know, that, that we need to know. We need to make sure we know how to exercise our, our, our option to say no, thank you. And I think that's a, a really, you know, an important point to, to, to raise here that that you know people do have abilities to say no. Yes, and I think that's uh, that's something we we sometimes forget. An unexercised right is a non-existent right. Um, so you have the right to say no, thank you to any offer or proposal that anybody would make to you. And I think. Um, one of the paths to virtue is is uh, exercising that right liberally, saying yes only to the right things and saying no to a whole host of other things. So I think saying no thank you to things is uh, one of the uh, one of the guarantor it's sort of a you know the guide rails uh, on the path to, vir to a virtuous uh, and flourishing life. And uh, you know again, it's uh, in, in things like therapy and counseling, they also talk about having to set boundaries. And I think it's an area where a lot of people struggle. And I think, you know, we can sort of see that it goes back, you know, we have a market economy that's built on that, that entire right. And, and, and that's the sense in which you're, you're sort of like respecting the dignity of people. That's right. right. And, and, and sometimes we think about, you know, real freedom being able to say yes. And what do markets give us? They give us lots of options and lots of, um, lots of different possibilities. But in some sense, I think uh, really the path to a, to a virtuous life is figuring out what are the very few things I need to say yes to, and then I need to say no to everything else. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this. And thank you all for joining us. Join us again next time for another eConversations. This has been eConversations, a joint production of Troy Trojan Vision and the Manuel H. Johnson Center for Political Economy at Troy University. Support for the Double Dome podcast comes from the Sorrell College of Business at Troy University, where students become geeks, an acronym for globally aware, ethical decision makers, engaged with the business community, knowledgeable to compete, and successful in business and life. More information at troy.edu business.